The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's on page 1016 in your pew Bibles. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Now let me pray for us, and we begin. Lord God, we implore that you send the Holy Spirit to teach us. Would your Holy Spirit speak through the words that I speak, and would your Holy Spirit speak despite the words that I speak? And so that all through my words, Lord, and the meditation of our hearts, that they will ultimately be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. I'm glad to be here to share God's word with you. And uh, I have two daughters, and one of them is in high school in Stevenson. Uh, Both of them is in high school in Stevenson. But one of them is in the orchestra, so they always have concerts. So when they have a concert, we go to, to watch them perform. But before the performance actually begins, there's this cacophony where everybody is just playing their own part, you know. But after that, the concert master then comes up and then leads the whole orchestra in tuning their instruments. And then the conductor comes out and then leads the whole orchestra. And when the conductor arrives, you know, the entire orchestra is then able to produce beautiful music. Now, because everybody has a distinct part to play, and beautiful music is then produced when everybody plays their part according to the direction of the conductor itself. Similarly, in today's passage, Peter is telling us that everyone in the church has a role to play. But there is a proper way in which everybody, the different groups within the church, play their part and interact and relate to one another under the conductor, who is the chief shepherd, who is Christ himself. But Peter's direction of how the church should structure itself is rather framed in a time of suffering. Last week, Pastor Tim had talked to us about how we are to suffer as Christians in exile. And next week, 
He is also going to tell us in terms of how we are to stand firm in the midst of suffering. So the passage that we are looking at today is framed by suffering, both before and after. And it's telling us that, that what is telling us that how we are to structure the church in a time of suffering and in a time of exile. And so Peter is then telling us that let us each play the role that God has given us so that we are God's church in exile. Let us each play the role that God has given us so that we are God's church in exile. Now, here in this passage, it's broken down into three commands, three imperatives, or three exhortations. And Peter addresses different groups of people. First, he addresses the elders, then the younger people, and then everybody. And here he then gives the instructions to each group of people. And that the elders, he exhort, exhort the elders to shepherd God's flock. To the younger people, he exhort them to submit themselves to the leadership of the elders. And then for everybody, he exhorts them to exercise humility towards one another. So let's begin with the first one in terms of the Peter's direction to the elders. And here he tells them to exhort, the, he exhorts the elders to shepherd God's flock. Reading the first couple of verses, we see this, you know, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so we ask this question, who are the elders that Peter is addressing? The term elder can refer to a function, just like we have the elders within the church. But it can also refer to age. So when it refers to age, it can refer to those who are spiritually more advanced, spiritually more advanced than others in, within the community. So they are probably the spiritual forebears or ultimately those who are more mature in their faith. But at the same time, it can refer just ultimately to just literal age, those who are elderly. All right. So there's a certain ambiguity here. On the one hand, you know, the responsibilities and the tasks that Peter later outlines fits the profile of those who are elders within the church, those who are leaders within the church. But yet, Peter then contrasts those who are elders with those who are younger and suggesting that it should also then refer to this age. So there's this certain ambiguity in the term that as Peter uses it, both to age and both to function. But this ambiguity, it's somehow not unexpected. It shouldn't be unexpected because in ancient communities, it was commonly expected that the older people would function as leaders. That's why we get the concept of village leaders. And within the Jewish community itself, it was the elders, usually the elderly people, who functioned as leaders within the community. Therefore, here in First Peter, I think that the term primarily means those who serve in a leadership role within the church, but secondarily, secondarily, those who are older in the faith and those who are older in age within the community. Now you begin to think, you know, I'm not an elder within the church. I'm not that old. So what has this got to do with me, all right? I think that here the instruction is primarily given to elders, 
That means those who are tasked with looking after the spiritual well-being and spiritual health of the church. But this passage can be applied secondarily, indirectly, or by by extension to those who assist in the spiritual growth of another. Take, for example, parents who are teaching their children to pray, musicians who are here leading us to worship God, volunteers that work with Alex in terms of mentoring the high school students, Sunday school teachers, those that help out in the nursery. This passage then is relevant for all those who are involved in the spiritual growth of another. But, you know, he's saying, I'm just a high school student. I'm not really responsible for spiritual growth of another. How does this passage speak to me? I think it speaks to us and to those who are high school students in that it is encouraging you to pray for those who are elders, to pray for those who have spiritual oversight over you. Pray for your parents. Pray for your parents that they will shepherd well. And so this passage speaks to all of us, not just only the eldest elders, but ultimately to all within the church. And the instruction that Peter then gives is that they are, sorry, the basis that Peter can make this uh, exhortation is that he himself, he calls himself as a fellow elder, as a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a fellow partaker of the glory that is to come. Now, Peter is an apostle, but he doesn't command them. He doesn't say, I'm apostle, you elders should do as I say but he exhorts them as a fellow elder. He doesn't address himself as an apostle, but as a fellow elder. And so you see Peter using the same posture of humility that he would then encourage others to assume later on. He is a fellow elder, but he is also a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. That means he is someone who is also testifying to the sufferings of Christ who participate in the sufferings of Christ. So he knows the challenges that they are facing. At the same time, he is a fellow partaker in their glory. Peter knows the temptations that they will face. Peter knows the challenges that they will face. Yet he also knows the future joy that they will face. And so therefore, he exhorts them. And he exhorts them primarily to shepherd the flock of God. And to shepherd them and to exercise oversight. Ultimately, here, it is noticed that it is God's flock. It is God's flock. It is not your flock. It is not your flock to do with whatever you want it to do. But you are to shepherd as an under-shepherd, ultimately God's flock. It is his flock. And so we who are older, we who are elders here, have a responsibility All of us in this community who are older in the faith have a spiritual responsibility to shepherd those who are younger in the community, those who are younger in the faith. And so then Peter is telling them that they are to shepherd the flock, protect the flock, and provide oversight and also to provide care. Why? Why is there a need to shepherd the flock? Because in a couple of verses later, Peter will say that the devil is like a lion walking around seeking to devour someone. And so therefore the elders are to shepherd the flock and to protect the flock ultimately against the attacks of the evil one, against the attacks of the devil here. The elders as good shepherds 
must then protect the flock, especially in a time when they're suffering and when the time is when the church is in exile. And he goes on to say that there are three aspects of how this shepherding, how this oversight is to occur. Firstly, he talks about their attitude. Here he says, shepherd, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Shepherd, not out of compulsion, not because you must, but because you are willing. Not grudgingly, but willingly and joyfully. Notice the passage doesn't say that if you have no desire to serve, you shouldn't serve. Notice it doesn't say that, well, I don't feel like serving, I don't feel like shepherding, I shouldn't shepherd. The passage doesn't say that. Because we all know of many reluctant prophets in the Old Testament, don't we? We know of Jonah, when God called him to go to Nineveh, he ultimately went the other way. When God called Moses, what did he say? Why me? Ask Aaron. So here it doesn't say that. But what is saying that if God has called you to serve as an elder or as a guide to help others in their spiritual growth, do it joyfully. Do it joyfully, do it willingly as God wants you to be. Next, he then talks about their motivation. Ultimately, do not do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. Do not do it for dishonest gain. Don't do it so that you can gain prestige. Don't do it so that you can gain honor for yourself. That is shameful. That may be what the world does, but that should not characterize the leaders within the church. Ultimately, their motivation is for an eagerness to serve, eagerness to give, an eagerness to ultimately pour ourselves into the lives of others rather than a desire to get. He then talks about their manner in terms of how they are to do it. Ultimately, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders do have authority, but they should not govern via the use of force, via the use of politics, coercion, intimidation, guilt trip, or threat. But ultimately, Peter is telling them that they are to be examples. We are called to imitate God, but Peter tells the elders to live their lives in such a way that they can contextualize the gospel so that it is easier for the church members to see how the gospel is to be lived ultimately in a difficult time. And so here Peter then tells them ultimately to be examples of the flock. People learn more by what is caught than what is taught. And so we learn much more readily when we see it being modeled, when we see it being lived out here. So therefore, Peter calls on the elders to lead by examples. By extension, Peter calls on parents to lead their children by example. Peter calls on teachers to lead by example. And then he then provides this reward, this reward for this exhortation. He says that, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory itself. Peter encourages the elders to be faithful in their service, not so that they can obtain a crown, a reward in their present life, but so that they can obtain a heavenly reward, ultimately when Christ returns. The reward here, this, it's not a literal crown, but it is a metaphor for the honor 
that God confers on the elders and all those who diligently served him. Note that this crown of glory functions as a motivation. In other words, God is going to reward their obedience, and God is going to reward their dedication and their faithfulness. Now, when believers come before the judgment seat of God, they are saved from condemnation by the blood of Jesus. Nevertheless, they will be evaluated as to how they have used the gifts and how they have used the talents that God has given them, and they will be rewarded accordingly. So as under-shepherds, as under-shepherds, shepherds that are employed by our chief shepherd, by God himself, church leaders have to give an account to Jesus, the chief shepherd, when he appears. By implication, parents will have to give an account to the chief shepherd when he appears. Parents will have to give an account to how they have mentored, how they have shepherded their children when Christ appears. Teachers, Sunday school teachers, have to give an account to the chief shepherd when he appears. And so all here, Peter exhorts, Peter exhorts the elders, the leaders within the church, the elderly, those who are more spiritually mature, to shepherd the flock. Now then, the next instruction is then given to the younger people. It is to submit to the leadership of the elders. It reads this way, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It begins with likewise, also here, just as the elders have responsibilities within the structure of the church, so likewise, those who are younger also have their responsibilities. So who are the younger people? Who are the younger people here? You know, that Peter says, who are they? If there's a certain ambiguity in the term elders, then there's a certain ambiguity in the term younger people, and that it refers both to age and also to function. It refers to those who are generally younger in the faith and also those who are not leaders within the church. And just as those who are older are typically leaders in the church, so likewise those who are younger are typically not leaders of the church. And so Peter then is directing his attention now to those who are not leaders of the church, but especially to the younger people. And here he encourages them ultimately to be subject to the elders, to submit themselves to the leadership of the elders. But what does it mean to subject oneself to another? What does it mean to submit oneself to another? It is nothing more than to put oneself under the authority of another, to place oneself under a leader. It is to affirm the honor and authority and the leadership that another has over us. But what it does not mean, ultimately, it does not mean that we are less important. It does not mean that the one who submits is less important or inferior, because we see this in Christ's own life. Christ submitted to God the Father, but none of us would say that Christ is inferior to God. Ultimately, we say that Jesus and the Father, they are equal in power, they are equal in glory, they are equal in essence. Nonetheless, they have different roles, and within that role itself, Jesus submits to the Father in that role. So when we submit to another person, it does not mean that we are inferior, but we are all equal before God. 
but it just recognizes that we have different roles to play. Now, ultimately, the language of Christian submission also does not mean absolute obedience. It does not mean that we do whatever the person in authority tells us to do. It does not mean that the one who submits cannot question the legitimacy of the request. Submission recognizes that there is a certain hierarchy. And submission within a Christian context recognizes that within this Christian hierarchy, God is right at the top. Therefore, submission to another human is then conditioned on submission to that we ultimately owe to God himself. Thus, you know, we cannot follow commands that, are go, that goes against the command of God. You all remember this, right? Peter tells us earlier to submit to the governing authorities. Do you all remember that when Ebenezer talked about it? But then in Acts 5 itself, when the Sanhedrin gave strict orders to the apostles not to teach in the name of Jesus, what did Peter himself say? We must obey God rather than human beings. So ultimately, this episode tells us, you know, that the one who submits can question the legitimacy of the request or the command that they receive, and that our submission to God overrides any allegiance and submission that we owe to any human structures or persons. Now, submission can be forced or voluntary, right? You know, you could be, for example, in wrestling itself, you can force your opponent to submit by choking him or putting him in some kind of grapple hole, and then your opponent can then signal that he submits by tapping. All right? That is not the kind of submission that Peter is advocating for the church here. Peter does not have that kind of submission. Rather, he wants the submission to be voluntary. It is not reluctant. It's not grudgingly given. Rather, it is something that is freely given. But what does it mean to submit ourselves to the elders within the context of a church? What does this mean in a congregational church? Because for our church, the congregation holds the leaders accountable. They hold the leaders accountable by personal feedback, by open meetings, and by vote on major issues. The congregation holds the final authority on matters of church discipline and doctrine, and the church is also called to discipline any elder that sins. So the idea of submission gets a little bit more messy within a congregational church. The idea of submission would be simple or would be simply understood if the church authority was located exclusively within the elders, so that the elders just say, do this, and then the congregation follows along, all right? That would be much simpler as the kind of structure you find in a Presbyterian church. But in a congregational church like us, there is a mutual accountability in that the congregation is accountable to the elders, individual members are accountable to the elders, and the elders are accountable to the church. So that ultimately within the structure of mutual responsibility, how do we submit to the elders of the church? How do we do that? For me, I think that submission to the elders, and this, this thing applies to me too because I am not an elder within the church. Submission to the elders here means that I am to have a posture 
that is ready to learn, ready to be taught, ready to be led by the elders and the leadership of the church. It means that I have a posture of trust towards my elders. I have a posture of trust towards my elders. This means that I, as a church member, is to develop a disposition and inclination that supports and trusts the goals and directions of the leaders, trusting that the Holy Spirit is able to lead the elders. If they craft a vision or goal, I will be supportive. I will not be cynical and second-guess every decision they propose. Rather, I will joyfully participate in their proposal. All right? This, however, doesn't mean that I can't ask questions about their proposals or that I rubber stamp whatever proposal that is being put forth, but that rather I have the disposition to trust the elders and to comply with their proposals. Now, the call for submission to authority is difficult for us. The reason why it's difficult for us is because we live in an era where there is a trust deficit. There is a trust deficit. In 2015, do you know that the Washington Post ultimately published an article saying that millennials don't trust anyone. Millennials don't trust anyone. And in July of this year, the Pew Trust Center itself put up some statistics that basically looked at the trust index for different age groups. And those who are within 18 to 29, they are the lowest in terms of their trust index, whereas those who are over 65 has the highest trust index. So that we are approaching a generation, as the generation gets younger, that they are less inclined to trust others. But then this disposition to trust others, not to trust others, it's not just only in the U.S. It is also in other countries. In 2017, the Harvard Business Review published the results of a survey of 28 countries that ultimately showed that the people's trust in business, in the media, in government, and the NGOs, they have all declined. And it is significant because this is the first year that all these four areas have declined. We don't trust businesses. We don't trust pharmaceutical companies because they are responsible for the opioid crisis. We don't trust governments because we think that they lie to us. We don't trust the media because of fake news. We don't trust the NGOs, non-government organizations, because we see the rampant sex abuse put up by the UN itself. And so because of all of that, there is a trust deficit. And in 2018, last year, the UN Acting Secretary ultimately said here that the world has a trust deficit disorder. The world has a trust deficit disorder. But yet, but yet, this lack of trust in institutions make us wary in submitting to the leadership of the elders. But yet, but yet, Peter tells us to submit to them, to trust them, to ultimately not be cynical, but to ultimately trust that they have our best intentions at heart. And so Peter then calls on those who are younger people to submit to the elders, to submit to the leadership, and to trust them. But this posture of trust is also necessary for the elders, and the elders must also trust the church. Ultimately, here, you know, that when the elders develop a 
proposal itself, they must ultimately trust that the Holy Spirit is able to guide the congregation. They must be able to trust that the same Holy Spirit who guided them in making this proposal is able to guide the congregation so that together both the elders and the congregation is able to discern the will of God. I mean, it would be really bad when the elders make a proposal, you know that, and say, look, First Peter 5.5, 5, younger people submit, all right? That, I think, would be bad form. But that when the leaders, when the elders of the church make a proposal, they have to trust that the Holy Spirit who guided them is also at work in the church. And so that together, together, we can discern the will of God. Now then, the final instruction is then given in terms where everyone ought to exercise humility towards one another. And let me read it for you, all right? It says, All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The language is all of you. So the final exhortation is given both to the elders and to the younger people, and that all of them are to exercise humility towards one another. They are to clothe themselves with humility towards one another. This command to clothe themselves with humility towards one another was kind of uh, adopted literally by the earliest missionaries to China, especially by those uh, guided and led by Hudson Taylor. In the early 1900s, when missionaries came to China, they usually came in their foreign dress and their foreign uh, suits and everything. But Hudson Taylor decided that in order for them to minister well to the Chinese people, they have to adopt the same attire. And so they dressed themselves as poor teachers in Chinese outfits. They were ridiculed by the other missionaries, but here they wanted to adopt a posture of humility towards others, especially to those who they are ministering towards. And so here Peter tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. That means that we are to adopt a posture of humility to one another here. Now the call here, it's important, especially for those who are elders. Elders are to adopt a posture of humility especially to those to whom they are leading. And the congregation is likewise to adopt a posture of humility to the elders. The necessity to adopt a posture is very important for those who are leaders. You know, Pope Francis, in a TED Talk, yeah, he did a TED Talk, right, Pope Francis, all right, but he, he made this statement here, he didn't do it in front of a stage. Actually, it was televised, you know, from his office. But it was kind of interesting. He made this comment that here, power is intoxicating unless it is connected with humility and tenderness. And only then can power become a service, a force for good. So that ultimately, power corrupts. But if it, if it is connected with humility it can then truly be a force for good. And you also know the book, uh, the book here, Good to Great. It's written by this uh, management guru by the name of Jim Collins. So he surveys various CEOs, all right? And one of the two characteristics he found of CEOs that really moved the company from just being an average company to having superior market performance, one of the two characteristics ultimately is humility. 
That's surprising. But we see that humility ultimately is able to make a leader ultimately be able to extend his influence towards others here. And here Peter is saying us when elders adopt a posture of humility towards those they lead, they will be more able to fulfill the mandate that God has given them as shepherds of the flock. Similarly, when the congregation adopts a posture of humility towards the elders, they will be less likely to be resistant to the leadership, less likely to be resistant to the proposals of the elders here. So a posture of humility is needed. And the reason that Peter gives is that he quotes from Proverbs 3, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud because they are only thinking about themselves rather than the community which God has placed them in. Now we ask ourselves, how can we exercise humility? What does a humble person look like? And C.S. Lewis has this great quote, you know. C.S. Lewis said this, the humble person will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he won't be thinking about himself at all. That is, he'll be thinking about the others. All right, and then he goes on to say, if anyone would like to acquire humility, the first step is to realize that one is proud. Because if you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. But then, given that, how do we show humility to one another? How do we show humility to one another? And let me give you some ideas here. But I think it involves a willingness to listen to others, a willingness to learn from others. Me, as a parent, I can learn from my children. A willingness to join others when they have a better idea, a willingness to connect with others rather than staying aloof, a willingness to serve others, a willingness to admit that we don't have all the answers. When, when students ask us or when people ask us difficult questions, a willingness to ultimately, that when things go wrong, to admit mistakes and to take responsibility for it. But it's also a willingness that when things go right, to shine the spotlight not on ourselves, but on others. And that ultimately here, we will then develop a posture of humility. Now, the whole passage that we have seen here today is that Peter is telling us that we each have to play the role that God has given us so that we can be the church in exile. He gives exhortations to the elders that they are to shepherd God's flock, he gives exhortation to the younger people that they are to submit themselves to the, to the elders. And that he gives exhortation to everybody that we are to adopt a posture of humility. And we adopt this posture of humility because Jesus, because Jesus, our chief shepherd, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, as we survey the wondrous cross, where the Prince of Glory died, where the Chief Shepherd humbled himself, may we then adopt the same posture of humility that he himself adopted. Amen.